Okay, Matthew chapter 5 this morning, Matthew chapter 5, I continue on from where we left off last week. We're looking at, at verses 13 to uh, 16 last week, so I just want to read that. Uh, you're hearing this morning, Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your lights so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. A couple things here. Uh, last week we kind of looked at the introductory part of this and uh, we kind of uh, realized that this text presumes something. This text literally presumes that uh, the condition of the world is not a good one. Um, it presumes that we're living in this society that's dark and it's getting darker every day. Um, and we're left here to be an influence. We're left here to be the salt, the light of the earth. And so we want to look at a little bit how we do that today, what that means. And uh, this isn't something new. The world has always been uh, a decaying place ever since it was uh, created after the fall. It began to rot. It began to con- just to be contaminated by sin. And even back in Genesis 6-5, the word says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, way back then, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was on the evil continually. See, that really speaks to the point at which we want to address just in introduction this morning, that the world is not a good place. (laughs) The world is filled with sin. The world is decaying. Um, and sometimes we find that hard to believe because we go for drives or we look out at the coast or the beautiful scenery here in California and we say, well, the world is not that bad of a place. We're not talking about God's creation, obviously. God's creation is beautiful. But unfortunately, it's ended by sin. Um, and everything is decaying. I went over on Highway 1 yesterday and I was driving down Highway 1 and I noticed this huge crane, two big cranes, and I thought, what is that? And uh, just south of uh, Pacifica there, they're building that tunnel, which I totally forgot about. And they're building a new way to get around the, the mudslide that always happens there. Devil's slide, they call it. And that's just an indicator that, you know what, things are decaying. Things are not getting better. So they had to provide a new passage for the whole road to go, go around this uh, uh, slide that happens every so often. And that's just the way the world is. Uh, even after, it was so wicked back then that God had to destroy basically everybody, the Word of God says, except eight folks. And uh, that's just amazing to think about that. That, that God basically um, kind of wiped out everybody but eight. And they were even far from perfect. Okay, And so we see that, and it, we have to understand that even after that judgment of the flood and all that, you, you read in the Bible about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you read about how rotten with sin they became. And the, the offspring of those eight people that were left after God wiped everybody out, they didn't get better. They got worse. And God eventually had to destroy those cities with fire and brimstone. And you know what? There's going to come a day, another day, in the future, when God will once again rain down fire on the earth. 
And it will be a destruction like we have never seen. In Second Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 7 and 10 there, it says, The present heavens and earth by His word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. That's what we have to look forward to, beloved. That's what's going to happen to this beloved earth that we cherish so dearly sometimes in our heart. It's, it's a good verse to use when the people come by your house and uh, you know they want you to sign some form about you know the the environment and we got to save the whales or the trees or you know whatever the yellow skin frog whatever it may be. And my answer is always the same. You know this isn't going anywhere. Uh, you know, if you think that, um, you know, people harvesting trees is bad, wait till God gets done with it, the earth, and they say, what do you mean? I say, well, the Bible says that he's going to come down, he's going to destroy everything with fire and brimstone. And they, it doesn't say that about, yes, it does. I'm not saying we shouldn't respect God's creation, we shouldn't do what we can, but I am saying that so much of our society is focused on that, they'd rather save a whale than an unborn child. And we see the priorities are all goofed up. And the reason that is is because man is infected with this deadly virus called sin. And there's no cure for that virus apart from God himself, apart from redemption that we have through Christ. Most men, when they get sick, they desire a cure. Most people, if you get sick, usually you go to the doctor. And the doctor says, oh, you're sick. Well, here, take this medicine, you'll get better. And you do it. Why? Because you have a desire to be well. It's kind of common sense. But see, this kind of sickness, this kind of virus, people don't want cured. They don't want their sin cured. They love it. They're in love with it. They love their sin, and yet they hate God's righteousness. They love their own way, and they hate God's way. And, you know, you stop and you think of the society in which we live in and how far advanced it is in technology and mechanical knowledge and, and all these different kinds of knowledge, and yet it has no bearing on the inside of man, that man is still a sinner and he still needs God's grace. His knowledge, our knowledge, doesn't retard our corruption in any way. It doesn't help it. As a matter of fact, a lot of times it intensifies it. A lot of times, it, it's used to defend it. We live in this dark and sad world. And Jesus says in Second, or a Scripture, Paul says in Second Timothy three thirteen, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, <laughs> deceiving and being deceived. You know, there's it's reading in a commentary this past week. That there's some scientists who believe that. Um, they propose that by surgery and this careful electronic stimulation of the brain that a person's bad impulses can just be taken away. You go in and you just get your brain zapped and you walk out and all the bad things are left there, uh, zapped up in, in this electrical charge, whatever they do. And they leave only the good part of your nature. That's what the scientists believe. Um, others really believe that this ideal crime-free, problem-free person will be developed by genetic engineering. Some people think if you could just come up with this perfect human being, this perfect clone. Um, 
you know, it's important to understand that naturally good traits can't be isolated from the bad. It's impossible. It's part of our nature. Our whole nature is sinful. Our whole nature is depraved. David knew that in Psalm 1.5. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. In other words, there's no good part in man from which a better part can be constructed. We need to understand that, that man is utterly sinful. Isaiah 1.5 says, The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is labeled as being more deceitful than all else. Desperately sick or desperately wicked. And it seems like in this world we go from one war to a greater war, from one crime to a greater crime. As soon as you hear some immorality, you think, wow, that's really bad. Then they come up with something new. And it goes from perversion to greater perversion. And this spiral is constantly downward. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. just want to read this for us. Romans chapter 1. And I'm just going through this so that we know the environment in which we're called to be salt and light. There's a great need for that. And the reason there's a need is because God gives us the condition of the world as sinful. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, look at what it says, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of an incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man, the birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Verse 24, Therefore God also gave up to their uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the... Uh, the, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. He says, Amen. 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is uh, for what is against nature. Likewise also the man leaving the natural use of the woman burnt the lust one for another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves penalty of the error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. They are backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Verse 32, Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only to do the same, but also to approve of those who practice them. 
If that's not a commentary on the society in which we live today, I don't know what is. You see the celebration of wickedness. You see parades that honor homosexuality. And it's even gone to the political stage where, you know, people have, have meetings with, with, with open sinners and, and they want to kind of coddle them and bring their group along so they can get more votes. They're inventing evil things and they're approving. They're, they're trying to manipulate the system so that everybody will, will look at what they're doing as, oh, it's okay. And we focus in on the, the aspect of homosexuality there in that list. But you know what? There's a lot of things that apply to you and I as well. An awful lot of things. And we need to stop and we need to check our own hearts before we point our finger at anybody. And so man is inherently wicked. There's this despair in the air, in the world. And we hope that somehow we can just live out our lives before mankind just goes into oblivion. Our world's a desperate world. It's a lost world. It's a dying world. Just because the world hates the message of the gospel and it hates those who bring the message of the gospel, they don't make it easy on us to preach. They don't make it easy on us to share the gospel. We can't stop doing that. Because there's lost people all over the place. And we're the only hope they have. That's the plan that God has has talked about here in verse 13. He said, you are the salt. You are the light. There's no other light. There's no other backup plan. It's not like God unleashed us on the earth as Christians and said, okay, go win them for the Lord. If you don't, well, then I can use these other... No, there's nobody else. So the world is a dark and decaying place and God has given us the responsibility of having an influence in it. His plan is the church. His plan is those who put their faith and trust in Christ. It's not going to be given to anybody else. It doesn't belong to some famous evangelist. It doesn't belong to those people on the radio that write all the books. It belongs to you. It belongs to me. I mentioned this last week when he says you are the salt. You are the only salt. You are the only hope preserving this earth. You are the only light. The message is really that Jesus is sharing. If you don't do it, nobody is going to. We looked last week that salt speaks of influence. It's kind of the silent testimony of our lives lived out before other people. It's the way we influence the world. And we mentioned this, but we really didn't go into detail about this. The five basic functions of salt is, first of all, purity. It, it purifies. Where there's something, a lot of times they would use salt to, 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 to uh, you know, help it become pure. But salt is white, and it, its, its purest form is, is very useful. You look at the idea of flavoring salt. Those of you who use salt in your foods, you use it because you like it because it gives it a little zap, a little zing. You just like the taste of salt. We're to flavor this dark and dreary world with the essence of Christ. 
with the presence of God's love and His forgiveness as believers. Also, if you have ever had a, a wound and you've faked yourself and, and uh, got salt in it, it, it stings quite a bit. Well, the message we have is stinging to people. They don't widely accept it. Um, you know, when, you, when, when God uses you to convict someone of their sin through the Holy Spirit and through His Word, that's not a fun process. People don't like their sin to be pointed out to them. Therefore, it has this stinging effect. It also creates a thirst. Do you ever eat something something that's very, very salty? What do you need? You need water. You need something to drink, a soda, something. You've got to drink something. I remember when we were little, we used to have horses on the property there. And I remember we had this big, they called it a salt lick, big block of salt. And they came in different colors. This one happened to be blue. I don't know why I remember this. But I remember going up there and not licking, obviously, where the, 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 the horses licked. But on the side where they didn't lick, my friend and I would go up there. We were little, you know. Oh, this is good. You know, we taste that salt. I don't know why we did that. It was just kind of weird. But I remember thinking, we need something to drink now because we're so thirsty. And I remember watching those horses. They would lick that salt and lick it and lick it. And then they'd go over and they'd take a gulp of water out of the trough there. Of course, we went in that. We didn't drink out of the horse water, just to let you know. It wasn't that weird. But, but see, the idea of salt, it creates a thirst. That's what we're to do in the world. We're to create a thirst by the way we live, by the way we speak for Christ. We do that by living out the Beatitudes before those around us. The last thing we mentioned was that it's a preservative. We're to be an acceptic in the world. We're to hopefully retard the spread of its corruption as we look at it. Hopefully your neighborhood's a little better off because you're there as a believer and you're doing the right thing and you're living a righteous life. There's a little influence there, hopefully, from you at work when you're the only believer there in that workplace. Hopefully you can shed some light and be some salt in that place for Christ. You can be a preservative. If you stop and you think if it weren't for Christians in the world, it would be a far more corrupt place than what it is. And it's pretty corrupt, beloved. It says there, you are the salt of the earth. It covers the whole earth. We're the only salt that the, the earth will ever know when it comes to influencing for Christ. And what Jesus is really saying here is that the earth is kind of like a dying carcass. It's slowly deteriorating. Day by day, hour by hour, it's rotting away. And it's in need of something to come along and restrain that wretchedness, that rotting effect, to create a thirst for God, to, to sting the sin's wound, to flavor life and to be, bring purity of the light of Christ to someone's dark and decaying soul. That's what we're called to do. We're the salt. And this is our witness as the silent impact of a godly life. As we go out and we live our Christian principles and our Christian values out in the workplace, hopefully that will have an effect. See, the way that we change the world is to infiltrate it with godliness. That's what we're called to do. With righteousness, with holiness. We're not to change it politically. We're not called to that as believers. I'm not saying we don't need to be involved in politics. But I'm just saying that that's not going to change the world. We don't 
not so much writing laws or rewriting laws or marching or holding up banners or whatever. It's about infiltrating this dark and dreary world with the righteousness of Christ. And there's only one option, beloved. It's you and me. Think about it this way. Never has the church been more involved in social action than in recent history. Never have the church been so preoccupied with endeavoring to see Christianity in government. And you hear, you know, senators and congressmen and even presidents stand up and explain their faith in Christ. And we think, wow, we've arrived. This is it. If only this person would get elected. But you look around at what happens. Society's more immoral than it's ever been. (laughs) Because that's not the way you do it. The way to influence this world is not through the world of politics. It's through the influence of a godly life. I mean, isn't it interesting to think of the fact that God can turn around a whole nation, and He has, a whole world by using us, by using believers. It just upholds His Word. God says He uses what? Simple things, right? He uses simple, mundane, everyday, routine, common things for the most amazing purposes. The last time I checked, when God made man in the garden, He didn't use gold or silver or even iron. What did He use? Dirt. He used dirt. I can't get much more base dirt. I mean, that ought to give you an idea of where we're at here from the very start. When he called David to deliver Israel from the Philistines, he didn't want Saul, the great king. He didn't want Saul's massive armor. He used a simple shepherd boy and a couple stones. That's all. When he came into the world, he didn't enter into a family of the wealthy and the noble. He didn't find himself born in a castle. He simply chose a simple peasant girl in a stable. Even when he chose the twelve, his disciples, he didn't choose the elite, the educated, and the affluent. He chose a couple of basically ignorant Galileans, some fishermen. See, the Bible says that it's not many mighty. It's, It's not many noble that God's going to use. And that's the way it's always been. We shouldn't be surprised at that. And the reason is is because God gets more of the glory in that case. The humbleness of one he uses. So he uses us. He uses us grains of salt to influence a corrupting world. But it doesn't stop with influence. second thing we want to look at here this morning is this idea of light. He says not only are you the salt of the world, but you're the light of the world. So he's moving to a different thought here. And you've got to think of it this way. Salt and light kind of balance each other out. When you stop and you think salt is something that's hidden. I don't think you'd want a, 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 a bowl of soup that had a big, you know, instead of a, a thing of a, a sour cream on top, it had a big pile of salt. That wouldn't be appealing. You'd look at that and go, gross, I'm not going to eat that. But if the salt is hidden in the soup and it adds to the flavor, then it's a good thing. See, salt is something that's hidden. You don't see it at all, usually. It just melts away in whatever you're, you're mixing, whatever you're trying to flavor. 
or it's preserving. And it, it works kind of secretly to preserve from the inside. But the salt, but the light, I mean, shines on the outside. It, you can't miss it. The light is this open and working, visible influence. Think of it this way. Salt is the influence of Christian character. It's quiet, but it's powerful. And light is this communication of the content gospel. So there are two sides. On the one hand, we live it, the salt. On the other hand, we preach it. That's the light. On the one hand, from the inside, we affect life's and society's thinking by living out our, our lives in the power of Christ. And on the other hand, we turn on the light so that everybody can see the message we want to give. And it isn't just in our words but it's a very open, overt, godly conduct in our world. We're not just to be a a subtle influence of salt, but we're also to be a very open, very blatant sometimes, influence like light. One thing about salt, and this is interesting, salt can't change corruption into incorruption. Can't do it. Salt can only retard the corruption. It can't change it. You can't take a piece of rotting steak and I'll just pack it in salt for a week and then it'll be good as new. No. It just won't be as rotten as it would be if you just left it there on the counter without any salt. Salt is a preservative. It retards corruption. And that's a kind of a negative function. Salt holds back corruption. See, we have to turn on the light of the gospel to transform that corruption into incorruption. The Word of God says it's the power of the gospel that allows hearts to be changed. And in verse 16, when he says, Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It implies, first of all, that they see our good works. The the idea that we're living out this life, being the salt... When we speak of Christ, they look at us and go, wow, that's why you're the way they are. Secondly, they glorify our Father who is in heaven. That means they've heard something about our Father in heaven. It implies that both message and life have been lived out and spoken before these folks. So here we are as salt, retarding the things of corruption in the world, but at the same time as light, we speak forth the truth of the gospel, and we live the truth of the light, So there's this overt positive testimony as well. If you turn over to Acts chapter 1, I thought this was kind of interesting. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke writes there, The former letter have I made unto you, O Theophilus. And then look at what he says. Of all that Jesus began to what? To do and to teach. To do and to teach. See, those two things have to go together. I've heard believers at times say, well, you know, I, I'm not going to be vocal in my workplace, or I'm not going to, you know, that would be a little over the top. I'm just going to quietly live my little Christian life out before everybody, and hopefully one day they'll come to me and ask me, you know, why are you so different? Tell me. You only got half the deal there. That's not going to work. We also need to speak. That's what Jesus did. He began to do things, and he also began to teach. The living and the speaking have to go together. Our light is a matter of living the righteous life and uttering the righteous content of the truth. 
When you look at light throughout the Bible, it's always related to the true knowledge of God. Psalm 36, 9. Scripture says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. So the first thing we need to realize is that God is light, right? 1 John 1. In Him is the fountain of life, and in His light we see light. God is light. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your lamp is a... Uh, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God is light. The word is light. The New Testament, um, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So we see that God is light. The Bible, the word of God is light. Christ is light. And that is the light that we are to bring forth to a lost and dying world. A dark place. We're to shine as Christ's light here in this this world. We're to tell them about God. We're to tell them about God's word. We're to tell them about God's Christ and the, the message of hope and forgiveness that's available to them. That's letting your light shine. That's exactly what it is. Read this morning, the Lord is my what? Light and my salvation. So the Bible basically uses the term light to really refer to all of God's revelation. The revelation of Himself, the revelation of the Word, the revelation of His Son. It's all light. And so we're to proclaim this message of light to a dark world, as well as be salt in a decaying one. Luke chapter 1, verse 77 says this, "...to give knowledge of salvation to His people." By the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The purpose for which Christ came was to give light to those who were captivated by the dark, by the darkness. We manifest the light of Christ. Think of it this way. He's the, he's the sun, we're the moon's. You know, we reflect His light. We're, we're a reflector of, of, of His light. That's what He calls us to be. He's the only true light. But we're these little mini-reflectors that, that bounce back light from Him. And that's the primary duty of the church today. Or else, why would He leave us here? It's kind of a cruel thing to do. Why would God save us? And then leave us here in this rotting, dark, horrible place. Because He wants us to put influence. He wants to use us. He wants us to be used by Him in a way that we'd never even dream of. We're to spread the message of salvation. We're not just to sit around and talk with each other. It's a wonderful thing to have fellowship. It's rich, it's exciting at times, it's, it's intimate. That's great. But sooner or later, we're called to be the light of the world. We're called to be the salt in the earth. We've got to get out from being wrapped about ourselves and get out into this world and make an impact. Someone gave a kind of a free tradition of 2 Corinthians 4, 6 this way. God, who first ordered the light to shine in the darkness, has flooded our hearts with His light. We now enlighten men only because we give them knowledge of the glory of God as we have seen 
and in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be reflectors of His light. Philippians kind of goes along with that. and In and, and, and Philippians 2.14, it tells us to do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become what? Blameless and harmless, children of God without rebuke. In other words, what's he saying is you have to live the life. The life has to be there, a blameless life, and then you take the light of the gospel, the message, the content, and you speak it forth. We have to be hated. Let's be hated because we're like Christ. But let's be hated without cause because we're to be blameless. See, a lot of Christians go out there and, and they, they aren't blameless. And then when people criticize them and say things about them, then they say, oh, I'm being persecuted for Jesus' sake. No, you're not. You're being persecuted because... Frankly, you're probably being a jerk. <laughs> it's a good reason to persecute somebody. They're not having a blameless, harmless life. They're not being humble about their faith. They're being proud. See, when you realize, as we started off, that we're nothing but dirt. We're nothing. There's no goodness in us whatsoever. That's a good starting point. Because anything after that is just gravy. If you've got any talents, it's not your doing, it's God's. If you have good looks, it's not your doing, it's God's. You know, anything you have, personality, it's God's doing in your life. It's not yours. So it kind of takes away that problemness all of a sudden. We realize that we have nothing. For everything, we turn to God and say, praise God. But we've got to be visible. We can't just be these secret little influences. We have to be visible. And that's what he's saying. The light has to shine openly. Verse 14, he says, A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You know, Ken mentioned we're going over to the Middle East, and I've read all about this for years and years and years. And I'm just amazed that, that we're going actually see these things firsthand rather than in a book, you know. Kind of exciting. But one thing they you look in books and you see these cities are always on the top of a hill. And the little villages are always on the top of a hill. And a lot of times it's because the arid season over there it allows the breezes to come up and cool cool the place. They can be easily defended if you're up on top of a hill, obviously. And, and, and these cities can be hidden. And it's not saying at night. I mean, obviously, at night you would see a city on a hill. But if you go over there during the day, you still see the city. You see its buildings. You see the effect of it being there. And it's amazing to me to think that there's some Christians who say, you know what, I know that God has shown His light in my heart and forgiven, but you know what? I don't see that I have any need to shine that anywhere. I'm just going to keep it private. (laughs) See, our lights are not supposed to be hidden. You're a city on a hill. 
The point is not to be inconspicuous. The point is to be conspicuous. Because every traveler knew where the refuge was. It was up on the hill. We're not a a group of masons as part of this secret society. We're not a bunch of pagans with, you know, little secret mysteries that only for the initiated. We don't have a cult for only a few. We're a city set on a hill. And would it be to God that everybody would flock to it? We've got to be salt before we can be light. We have to have character in our Christian lives before we speak the message. That's the divine plan. That's the way God wants it to work. So the condition of the world is dying. The plan is us. There's a problem. Verse 13, he says, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, what use is it? The only way salt can lose its saltiness basically is by contamination. It gets contaminated with other substance. Pure salt never, ever loses its saltiness. Salt is always salt. But back in the day, salt was a very precious commodity. It wasn't like, you know, they could go into McDonald's and take a, you know, a hundred salt packets and walk out. I mean, they, it was a very precious commodity. Today, we throw salt around like it's nothing. I mean, we're cooking, you throw it over your shoulder or whatever you guys do. You know, uh, I never understood that. I, I just don't get that. It's like, oh, I'd have to go sweep it up. You know, I, I couldn't just do that. But, uh, you know, it, we just kind of throw it out. It doesn't make any difference. But back then, it was a very precious thing. And it says, you know what? If, if it loses its saltiness, how does it lose its saltiness? It becomes contaminated. See, there is such a thing as contaminated salt. It gets contaminated with different uh, minerals and different things, and it doesn't taste like salt anymore. It tastes yucky. And the only reason you would do it anyway, you'd throw it out. And you wouldn't throw it out in your garden because it would kill everything in your garden. You would put it on a path because it would probably keep the leaves down on the path. And people would trample it under their foot. See, our Lord here said that the danger is that the salt can lose its saltiness. In other words, it becomes, in the original language, it means flat or tasteless. Ask yourself, it become flat or tasteless in a Christian walk? Have you lost influence? See, salt is good, Luke 14.34 says, but if the salt loses its savor... What shall it be seasoned with? It's neither fit for land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. See, they only threw it on the road because that's the only place to do it. People would walk over it. See, if sin enters our lives as believers, we'll lose our influence. We just will. People will look at our lives and say, well, you're going to tell me about your God and you, know, you can't even you know, look at the way you're living. I don't even do some of the things you do. And you're calling me a sinner? It's not that we think we're better than anybody else. Because we understand that we're sinners, but we're saved by grace. And our desire is to not just trample all over that grace and say, well, I'm forgiven, I'll just go do whatever. But it's, it's to live a life that's worthy of God's grace. You can't be deterrent against decaying all around you, immorality, whatever it was, unless there's purity in your life. You're not going to create a thirst for someone 
in someone's life for God if there's no thirst for God in your life. See, the point here is not that you lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. But it's kind of like in, in 1 Corinthians 9.27. You become a castaway. You forfeit your influence and you lose your impact. When a Christian loses his saltiness, it, it's a sad situation. And you can lose it, obviously, because he wouldn't even have brought this up. Just be sinful at work and you'll lose your reputation. Just be sinful at your school. Listen to the things that people are saying that aren't right. Go along with the little dirty talks or the jokes or whatever. Be involved in what you know is dishonoring to Christ. And you'll lose your saltiness. You'll lose your influence. You'll create no thirst for God at all. The point is, God needs your influence and you're to be the salt. But to be salt, you have to stay away from that which corrupts us. You just have to. That's what the Word of God says. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfectly pure salt. And we won't be until we get the glory one day. As long as we're in this life, we'll have these impurities. We'll have the potential for losing the salt. And that's just the way it is. But God help us to live a life of influence in this world. And he also says regarding light, he says, don't, you know, a light is something you set on top of a hill. You don't put it on a lampstand. You don't put it under a bushel. Why would you do that? doesn't make sense. Jesus is saying, how foolish it would be to get your lamp Back then they had to trim the lamp, make sure the oil was in. It was kind of an intricate thing. You just had to turn on a light switch. But to get everything clipped up and ready to go, fill it with oil, light it, and then stick it under a bushel. You just wouldn't do that. So nobody could see it. That'd be silly. Some of us have within us treasure in earthen vessels, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know what? No one knows it. No one knows it. Someone once said that most Christians are like the Ark River. They're frozen at the mouth. See, sometimes we need to get beyond that. Um, I don't know how long it's been for you since you shared Jesus Christ with someone at work or store or wherever. It's been a year, a month, five years, ten, fifteen years. See, we, we have the light already. The question isn't whether or not we have the light. We have the light. If we're Christians, we have the light of Christ shining within us. It says in verse 15, Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but put it on a lampstand, that it gives light to all that are in the house. See, that's the purpose of light. To be visible. Just because you take... A light and you put it under a bushel doesn't mean the light doesn't exist. It's still light. It's just lighting what's under that bushel. That's it. It's not having the influence that God desires it to have. See, the question isn't whether or not your light's gone out, as some would say. Remember that little song? Don't let Satan shoot it out. I'm going to let it shine. If that light is lit by Christ, if that light is lit by God, you know what? You can't stop it. 
it can't be sniffed out by Satan or anybody else. But you can stick it under a bushel. Still there. Just doesn't have any impact. If Christ lives in you, He's the light, and you can't change that. There's no way. But you can change the effect it has. Maybe a basket of fear. Maybe a basket of wanting to be accepted. It may be even a basket of wanting not to offend or to make waves. Whatever the basket is that you're putting your light under, Jesus Christ is telling us today, whatever it is, it needs to come off. You need to allow the light of Christ to shine the way He wants to. Let it shine before men in the presence of those who hate you and they would kill you and they would reject you and they'll deny you. Let it shine and let them see the beauty of your works. Let them see what God is doing in your life. And he closes and he says, you know what? The whole reason we're doing this, it's not for your own glory. The purpose of this is what? He says that they may glorify God the Father in heaven. That's why we do this. We don't do it for our own glory. It's not that we live these Christian lives and we walk around and say, hey, look at me, I'm a Christian. I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do this, I don't do that, da 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 that's not what it's about. But he says the purpose is once they see good works, once they see what God is doing in and through you, they'll step back and they'll go, whoa, last time I met you, man, you were a train wreck about ready to happen. What happened? Look at you today. I mean, it's like night and day. I knew you in high school, man. You were almost an alcoholic. You drank every day. Drugs. Now, you, you, you're why? You're, you're, you're a Christian? And you have the opportunity to share with them. Hey, it's not me. You need to give God the glory. It's God that does the work. See, that's the ultimate purpose of everything we do, everything we think. It should be for the glory of God. There's only one reason to be the salt of the earth. There's only one reason to be the light of the world. And that's for His glory. For His glory and His glory alone. That's the only one reason to do anything when it comes to ministry. is for His glory. If you have some hidden agenda or some hidden motive and there's some kind of a, you know, wanting inside you for a pat on the back and everybody say, oh, great sermon, great. You know what? It's wrong. It's just flat out wrong. And our flesh is easily led down that path. We need to stop and say, hey, you know what? It's not me. It's God. Praise God. Don't ever praise a man or a woman or anybody else for that matter. Praise God. That's who deserves it. That's the purpose of why we do what we do. I'm not saying God doesn't use this and can't use this. does. He gifts us with abilities and talents that, that far outweigh our own. And there's not a person in this room today that God doesn't want to use in a greater way to some capacity. But you first have to stop and you have to say, okay, am I living it? Am I telling it? Am I doing what God has called us to do? Or have I lost my saltiness in that? taking the light of Christ and I'm putting it in the closet and closing the door. 
Because if you are, that's, that's not honoring Christ. God doesn't want us to do that. And when, when we are the salt and the light of the world, what happens? We see change. We see change in family members. We see change in neighbors. We see change in people at the store that our, our lives brush up against. Why? Because God is using us because He can. Not for any other reason. Because He can. And He desires to. And it's all for His honor, His glory. All of us here this morning, personally, one day, we're going to, physically, we're going to die unless the Lord returns. And I pray that you're ready for that time. I pray that your heart is right before God. I pray that you've cried out to Him and said, God, I'm tired of doing things my way. Lord, I'm as unrighteous as anybody can be. Save me. I need your help. I'm crying out to you, Lord. That's what needs to happen. And He'll grant you that heart of repentance. He'll grant you those new desires and, and, and everything will come together for you, spiritually. I pray that you've made that decision. You've made that commitment. If you haven't, there's still time. Obviously, you're still breathing. <laughs> We're still here. God's grace goes on second by second. But for us believers here, I wonder how many people we know who may have already passed into eternity that we didn't share with. Our lives weren't impacted on them in any spiritual way. I pray today we would make a decision. I'm not going to let another day go by without being an influence. Without being willing to take that stand, even though it's uncomfortable, even though I'm fearful, even though I don't know if I can even do it. I'm not going to let another day go by without being bold in my Christian testimony, without being bold with my Christian message and seeing God impact, seeing God use me. God, I'm going to trust you to use me in the lives of my family members, in the lives of my friends, in the lives of my co-workers because that's why you put me there. It's you know, make no mistake about it. God has you at the job where you're at for a purpose, for a reason. You may hate the job. I don't know. But you know what? God has you there for a purpose. And I bet you it's to light, to be a light, to be salt for Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to Bless us. Father, we thank you that this morning, Lord, we looked at this aspect of being not only salt, but also light. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to make a difference in this world in which we live. Lord, we know that you're a God who saves. Lord, you've, you've saved many probably in this room at one point in their life. You've come down, you revealed yourself to us in a way that we understood and we repented of our sin and we trusted in the message of the gospel. Christ is the only way, the only hope that we have for forgiveness. And we yielded our lives over to you as our Lord and Savior. We've been saved by your grace because you're a God who saves. Lord, we pray that we would believe that message enough to take it out of these four walls and to actually live it out and to reveal it to those around us. Lord, help us, because it is a fearful thing. 
Help us to be bold for our faith. Help us to be bold, and yet the Word of God says as harmless as doves. Help us to be some spiritual wacko that turns that people off. Lord, help us to be sensitive to their needs. Help us to realize that people who are lost in this dark world don't understand they're lost. They don't understand even the nature of their sin. They just think everything's okay. And I pray that we would have compassion on them as you have compassion on us. Father, that we would reach out to them in humility and grace and mercy. And Lord, that you would work in their heart, grant them the repentance they need. We pray that even this next week that we would be bold with our faith and we would do the work in the people's lives around us. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. All God's sake. Amen. Amen.